Hildreth. With me as always is my amazing co-host, Christine Stacy. We want to remind everybody that the views and opinions expressed here are solely our own and nobody else's. All right, so we are back for part two of Doug's story. In part one, if you had a listen to it, we talked about basically childhood from the time yeah. he was born to about 12 years old. Yep. Okay. And so we're going to pick right back up. And this is part two of three part. We're going to start right where we left off. Had a phone call. Your mom was sober. Yep. she just come home from a, a, stint, a treatment center. Okay. And yeah. we're 12 years old, summer day. You had a phone call from the police. Yeah, it was July 27th, 1998. Okay. I remember the day. So why don't you just tell us? We were leaving the house, and this is what we had finished the last episode on. We were leaving the house. My mom was taking us to lunch. The phone rang, and she just said, let it go to voicemail. We'll screen the call. Voicemail comes on, plays our little tape, and on the other end is a Newburgh police officer leaving a, a message saying, hey, we're at the scene of an accident, and we believe that one of your relatives may have been involved. Can you please come down here? As we're pulling up to the scene of the accident, I saw everything I needed to see to know that it was my grandma. I saw her purse laying in the middle of the road. And I knew, I knew, before my mom ever got out of the car and talked to anybody, I knew it. I spent every day with her. I knew exactly what her purse looked like. And she had been life flighted to OHSU. So we all got in the car and drove straight up to OHSU to wait and, and meet the family there and I remember sitting in this little waiting room and the doctor came in to talk to us and told us that she was in surgery and that things were very bad. And they were not sure that she would be able to make it. They said that the next hour would determine whether or not she was going to survive. Doctor left to go back into surgery. What felt like maybe five or ten minutes later, it, it felt like the snap of a finger. The same doctor walked right back in that room, and I'll never forget it. He just said, I'm really sorry she didn't make it. It was the most devastating experience I had had in my little life to that point. Because that was the only person in the world that I was 100% safe with. She was the only person that I had experienced all of my life with that had just absolutely loved me. It was almost surreal and an out-of-body experience to a large degree because we just didn't talk about feelings in our family. We didn't communicate about anything. I remember feeling so broken and so hopeless. I had no idea what I was going to do for the rest of my life because she was my person. Mm. I can remember that same day they allowed us to go in and see her body. Oh, wow. And I can remember being 12 years old and, and, and I w loved her so much and was so distraught by her being gone that I just wanted to sit with her dead body. And I know that sounds morbid and morose, it was the only thing that made me feel safe was sitting next to her, hmm. even though she was gone. And it was horrific to see what she looked like. 
So at this point in time, your mom is sober, correct? Yes, and has maintained her sobriety. How long? What's the timeline here now? She'd been sober for three months. Oh. Okay. So how is home life now? Still very chaotic. There's a saying, take the drugs and alcohol away from an alcoholic horse thief. You still have a horse thief. My mom was getting better, and she was confronting the demons of her past, and she was learning how to cope with life on life's terms, and she was learning how to become present and be a part of our lives. And she has done it masterfully. She also was battling three decades of her own abuse and trauma, some of it self-inflicted and most of it not. So our family dynamic was still just very chaotic. My home life was in turmoil. We were beginning to heal, but we had a long ways to go. And now my grandma was gone. So I was trying to learn how to live in the world without her. And I felt like I had just been rocketed into another place and left to figure it out by myself because my mom and dad were so busy trying to put their marriage back together. My mom was so busy trying to put her life back together that I felt like I was left to just figure it out for myself. And at this point, like you're, I mean, your grandma was your person, but you were, you yourself, like, paint the picture real quick. You're a pretty good kid. I was a great kid. Absolutely. I was a great kid. And I mean that. Good in school, good in sports, you name it. All American boy, blonde hair, blue eyes. My parents would even say, to this point, I was the perfect child. Okay. What I quickly started doing was looking for ways to get out of right here, right now, because I was hurting so much. And I can explain this with an analogy, but it's a story. The first time I ever put drugs or alcohol in my body was that same summer, not even a month or two later. And a buddy of mine and I were camping out under our carport at our house because, you know, it's cool when you're a kid and you sleep out under the carport or in the backyard in a tent, wherever (laughs) it is. It's camping. Yeah. We were camping. There was a guy down the street who was 18 or 19. He was in high school, maybe had been in high school longer than most experienced high school for. Got it. He was one of those guys. Yep, lifer, high school lifer. Yeah, he was, I still have a lot of respect for him, still to this day. He had the black denim jeans on with the wife beater tank top and the chain to his wallet. Totally. Like, I mean, stereotypical, 100%, he was that guy. And they were outside and making some noise down the street from us. And he had always been nice to us. He was not one of those guys that picked on us or anything like that. He was always almost like an older brother to us. Played huh. basketball with us and stuff. Okay. He just dressed the part. Right. They were down there, and we walked down there to see what they were doing. Well, they were outside drinking. I'll never forget it. It was St. Ides Malt Liquor, which is just the most disgusting stuff on the face of the earth. We walked up to him, and he just held out one of those mason jar glasses full of it and he goes take a drink for whatever reason I did not even hesitate I just grabbed it and I took a drink and I went to hand it back to him and he goes no 
drink it. <laughs> oh, no. And I was like, okay. And I just tilted it up and I chugged this whole glass of malt liquor. Uh. It was disgusting. Tasted so bad. And about 10 minutes later, all of a sudden, this warm, easy feeling starts wafting up over me. <laughs> And for the first time in my life, I was comfortable standing where I was standing, doing what I was doing with the people I was doing it with. I didn't know that it was problematic. I thought, and I mean this, in that instant, hey, I got to do this more often. Right. Because yeah. it felt good. This works. It, it did. I felt amazing. And we stood down there and we drank with them all night. We had... I never forget it. I had the kiwi strawberry lime uh, wine coolers. Oh, man. We followed it up with that, man. And by the time I was done, my buddy had to pour me down the street back into my bed. And I threw up all over the driveway at my dad's house. We had Chinese <laughs> food that night. And I want to paint a picture. There was chow mein everywhere. Oh, God. Okay. So. <laughs> and really quickly... That became what I searched out because it felt so good. Right. And that was the beginning of what became a really, really rapid ascent into drug abuse and alcohol abuse. So 12 was drinking, 13 was smoking pot, 14 we started taking pills, 15 we were experimenting with psychedelics, 16 we started really getting into the white drugs and the stimulants. And at 16. at 16 years old, that was when I started using cocaine and methamphetamine wow. at 16 years old. Right. And at this point, in all seriousness, I'm a daily user. I'm smoking pot. I'm drinking every day. We're doing coke. We're doing meth as often as we can. I wish that I could say it differently as in like, oh, we were just kids trying to have fun and find our place in the universe. But I was genuinely trying to get away from everything that was going on inside of my head and in my heart. I was just searching for a way out because yeah. I was so uncomfortable in my own skin that I had to put stuff in my body to just make it stop for a little while. And it was so effective. Right. So you're in high school. Yes. And you're doing all this. How's high school going? High school was phenomenal. I was a, graduated with a 3.62 GPA. I was a 12-sport athlete, and I was a full-blown dependent drug addict by the time I graduated high school. So, I had figured out how to put on the mask of being the all-American boy and being a great student, being a great brother, you name it. I was really, really good at manipulating people, and this can tie back into those things of mom teaching me how to sneak out of the house. Right. Mom taught me how to blend in. Mm -hmm. And mom taught me how to hide things. And my grandpa taught me how to keep secrets. Yeah. And I learned how to live in secrecy and lies. And I learned how to do it at a, this sounds weird to say, at an elite level. Right. So you're saying, like you're using every day in high school, graduating, Yep. first of all, and then graduating with great grades yep so people didn't know 
in general? Not really. Now, so I was, right, like, of course, I was your friendly neighborhood pot dealer as well at this time <laughs> because I've always been interested in business. And <laughs> so you started a couple businesses? I've, I've always been an entrepreneur, and I've always leaned towards sales mm. because it, my skill set lends to that direction. Mm. So were you successful? Yes, I was. That's for another story. And okay. so... I mean, if we're going to go into that, so towards the end of this, right, um, I got sober at 20 years old. Okay. And I've been sober since. And eventually it all caught up with me. I was just out of control. I was also always really good at painting a picture and presenting a story and having a reason why and being able to just put the mask on and fool people. Help me continue to paint the picture. So how far out of control did it get? The best way to describe it is that by this point, I was doing things like driving down to Southern California weekly. Weekly. And picking stuff up and then driving back up I-5. So, how long of a drive is that? Uh, It's 16 hours to L.A. I can tell you because I did it all the time. And you would drive down and back? Yeah, in a day or two. So, (laughs) right? So, we'd just be fully stimulated out and, right, these are not normal situations where I'm just drinking coffee and we're having a nice road trip. I was on a mission, man. I was working. Okay. And I worked hard. So we're networkers. Okay. We are little networkers. Through the years, I continued to connect and find people that allowed me to advance my career and my position. Okay. And that's what we did. So you're advancing your career driving up and down. I-5. Okay. Then what happens? What happens is you reach a point where if you're a drug addict or an alcoholic, where you lose the ability to control your using. And I reached it pretty quickly, and I started spiraling out of control and doing things that were reckless and making decisions that were irresponsible. Now, I want to be really clear when I say that everything I was doing was irresponsible, but I was doing things that were going to lead me to get in trouble. And I was making bad decisions in a row. But I was to the point where I was staying up for four or five or six or seven days at a time without sleeping because I was just on drugs all day, every single day. I was not employable. I couldn't hold a job. I was rapidly spiraling out of control. We had stopped in to see some friends and we were going to stay the night there because I needed to sleep. And there was a warning that there was going to be a snowstorm. And I was worried that we were going to get stuck because it was for multiple days at this time. I'll never forget it. I got up in the middle of the night when the announcement came through and I was like, we got to get out of here. We got to go. So we loaded up in the truck and we're driving home and I start falling asleep at the wheel and I'm on I-5 and it's three o'clock in the morning. There's nobody out. And you know, when you drift off the side of the road, the noisemaker that you hit, Well, I started using that to tell me when I was about to crash because I was falling asleep. So I would just drift into it and and then I would drift to the other lane all the way across all three lanes of I-5. And as soon as I hit it, I would just start drifting back and forth while I'm falling asleep at the wheel. The next thing I know, these cop lights are on behind me. And I'm like, oh my God, this is it. I pull over and I'm thinking I'm going to jail. Do you have things in your car you shouldn't? Absolutely. Yes, I have a, a... canopy on my truck and a a bunch of stuff in the back that is loaded with things that would put me in prison for a long time okay and 
Officer walks up to my window. I'll never forget this. And he's like, son, do you know why I pulled you over? And I said, I go, absolutely, sir. I go, I'm falling asleep at the wheel and I've been swerving. And he goes, where are you headed? And I said, well, I'm trying to drive back to Oregon and here's where my story comes in. I got to get back to college. I've been down visiting a sick family member for a few days and there was a snow warning and we knew we needed to get back before that hit. And I'm really sorry, but I'm just trying to get home to some family, you know, and I hand him the driver's license and insurance and he says, okay, I'll be right back. And he goes back to his car and I'm thinking, there's no way. He's going to come back and say, get out of the car. I'm going to field sobriety test you or I'm going to search your car. And that's it. I'm going, you know, I'm going to prison. And he comes back and he hands me my license and my insurance. And he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to drive ahead of you with my lights on to the next exit. And you're going to follow me. And I'm going to drive to the nearest hotel. And when I get there, he goes, you're going to park and you're going to go in and get a hotel room and you're going to go to sleep. And he goes, if I see you leave that hotel parking lot before morning, I'm going to pull you over and I'm going to cite you and arrest you. Wow. And I was like, yes, sir. Whatever you need, sir. So he hands me my driver's license and insurance back. And he goes, and I don't know what you do when you're in Oregon and you get pulled over. He goes, but in California, when we pull somebody over, they normally pull to the shoulder of the road. Yeah. I was stopped in the middle of I-5 <laughs> in California, in a city, like, just mind you, like the middle lane of I-5. Like three lanes? Three lanes wide, and I had pulled over on the left side, fast lane, next to the barrier. <laughs> I can't even imagine. I And I mean, I literally, like when he said that, I just looked up at him and I was like, ha what do you do? I mean, I was just like, oh my goodness. Yeah. And he got in his car and drove up and we drove up and we stayed over, stayed and the night. Home. I slept in my car that night. Oh, wow. You know, I went into the hotel, mm-hmm. checked on a price for the room. I could not afford a price in that room. Yeah. Uh, and I just went right back out and went back to bed in my, my truck, slept okay. in my truck overnight. Okay. But that was the extent of where things were. And that was the insanity. Yeah. Okay. So things are spiraling out of control. At some point in time, you wind up in jail, correct? Yeah. What happened was really quickly, my family realized that I was out of control and they had done everything they could to help me. And they finally just set some really, really hard boundaries with me and said, since you're not willing to help yourself, you're no longer welcome here Right. when you're not sober. And I was never sober. So it meant I was no longer welcome around my family. And that was really hard because then what I started doing, and this is where we get into some really wild, where we, we were talking to somebody earlier about reality testing. Yeah. My reality became that since I couldn't rely on my family, that what I then had to do was commit crime to support my habit. Right. Because obviously I couldn't go get a job and work, and obviously I couldn't go to anywhere and use resources to get help to get clean and sober because that didn't work i tried it okay so i was resigned to this life this sentence almost of just this is what it's going to be and so i started stealing things i would go to the store and steal things i started breaking into people's homes and stealing things to support my drug habit okay i was doing this homeless Right, So I'm living on the streets at this point because okay. I have nowhere to go and I have no one in my life that even wants me around. Yeah. And I'm living in my truck. Okay. And that was where it had taken me to was this 
it was really a dark place. I actually, and oddly enough, I slept in the parking lot across, across the street from the police station in the town I live in. I don't know why, but that was where I always ended up. Yeah. Because it was a parking lot I could park in and nobody would really pay much attention to me over there. Yeah. And that was where I would sleep at night. Okay, so the stories you're telling us now and the crime and that kind of thing, I'm assuming this is, we're getting into the last couple of years of your using. Yeah, this is right at the end. Okay, so. What happened? Yeah, what happened? So one night I had, at this point I'm no longer in business, right? I am scraping to get by every okay. day. And I am one of those people mm-hmm. that you see. I became what you would stereotype as a drug addict. Okay. I was that guy. Yeah. You couldn't keep the facade anymore of no. all have it all together. It was gone. Okay. At this point, I was hoping I never ran into anybody because I didn't want to have to even try. Hmm. I was hopeless and I was desperate. I was driving home one night, and when I say home, I mean to my parking lot. Okay. I had just met up with somebody and picked up some drugs. Somehow a police officer got behind me, ran my license plate, and at that point they had I had done enough things that they were actively looking for me. I got pulled over. He asked me if he could see my license and registration. It was the it was just one of those weird things. I was so out of it and I'd been up for so many days that I had lost my wallet in the mm. few minutes I'd been in my truck. I couldn't right. find it. He pulls me out of the car. He says, "Well, what's your name?" So I start giving him my name and he goes, "Oh, okay. Well, turn around and place your hands on your head. You're under arrest. And I was like, for what? And all he said was, the boys upstate want to talk to you, Mr. Hildreth. And he handcuffed me and he put me in the back of his car and they took me to the police station to book me. While I was there, they started, they have to empty your pockets and they're like, do you have any illicit drugs? And of course I'm like, yes, I, I do have illicit drugs in my pocket. And he says, okay. And so he pulls those out and he says, is there anything else in your pockets? And I'm, yeah, there's stuff in my pockets. And I had like handheld bolt cutters in my jacket pocket and glass cutters that I used to break into people's houses were literally in my pockets. And I had this little mini crowbar that I had fashioned that I would use to break doors open and stuff. And it was so humiliating mm. to sit there while they pulled these things out and cataloged them and then looked at me and asked me what I used them for. Right. While I was waiting for them to finish booking me, the officer that arrested me came in and sat down next to me in this holding cell. And he looks at me and he goes, what the hell are you doing with your life? Hmm. And at this moment, I had finally reached a place where there was no more denial and there was no more rationalization. There was no more blaming. I wasn't a victim anymore. I just was very aware of how broken I was and how ugly I had become. And he said, you're 20 years old and you have the rest of your life ahead of you. And if you don't do something about it, you're going to spend the rest of your life in prison. And I remember hearing him and I actually hearing him and hearing someone for the first time in years. And I looked at him and I just said, I don't have anything to say to that. And not because I wanted to sound tough, but because for the first time in my life, I didn't have a comeback and I didn't have a smart ass answer. Yeah. And that was that. And they took me to the county jail 
and they booked me. Shortly thereafter, I was arrested and indicted on 15 felony charges. Okay. So that about uses up our time for part two, and I'm pretty excited to hear part three uh, to figure out the connection between how that happened and here we are now. So I hope you all join us for part three. Thank you guys for listening and for opening up with us. (laughs) 